First Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 6 through 16 this morning. Last week we talked about the who, what, where, when, why, and how of apostasy. It's something that the Holy Spirit had warned about. It's something that was present during Paul's day, and it certainly is something that is still present today. We're told that it will continue throughout the history of the church, probably leading to a form of mass apostasy shortly before Christ returns. And according to the Bible, it will continue to infect the church until Christ returns. So that was last week. One of the things that God has done to help counter the false teaching that we'll see in the church, the false teaching that leads to apostasy, leads to people abandoning their profession of faith, whether or not they're genuinely saved or not. We talked about this last week. We believe that salvation is eternal. It is something that is permanent. But there are those who might profess, might do it with their lips, but it's not necessarily something that has been born in their heart. And so many will fall away. And so one of the things that God does to help to protect the church is to provide pastors, elders, and shepherds. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body in Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now there's a lot there. But essentially what Paul had written to the Ephesians was that God had placed into the church the apostles and prophets and they were the ones who gave the word of God. It came at a time before we had the canon of scripture that we have today. He gave evangelists to help lead people to Christ. But he also gave pastors and teachers to help to build up the church. And you notice that he says that he did that to build up the body of Christ so that they might all attain to a knowledge of the Son of God and to become a mature man. And so one of God's protections when it comes to the church to try to prevent the effect of false teaching is to provide pastors and shepherds to the church. That's one of the reasons why Paul and Silas appointed elders as they went back to the churches that they had founded and they made sure that they established elders in those churches. And we even see here with this letter to Timothy where Paul writes in the very beginning that he left Timothy there at Ephesus in part to appoint elders and deacons to help to shepherd the church. So as we come to our passage today, Paul's going to remind Timothy of three disciplines and three duties of a good shepherd. So essentially, what that means is I'm going to talk about myself this morning. And I mean that in jest to some degree. I was going to make this all about Dustin, sort of point the finger at him. But it has a direct impact on me because as a shepherd, as a pastor, these are things that are directed at me. Now that doesn't mean there's no practical application for you because it means that there's now a standard you need to hold pastors and shepherds to. And so it's a bit of a double-edged sword. So no, I'm not going to talk about me this morning, but I'm going to talk about some principles that do apply to me as a pastor or a shepherd. They apply to Dustin as well. 
and in fact really apply to anybody that you allow yourself to be taught and fed by. We live in a different age today. It used to be that within the church there were pastors and elders and shepherds and you'd go to church and they would be the primary source of teaching. You would have your own Bible. You would study. But we live in an age today where all we've got to do is open up the internet or walk into a bookstore or... Does anybody read books anymore? You know what I'm getting at. I mean, we, we, we are flooded by teaching from everywhere, even in our music. I've been mentioning to you, I've been reading a book on something called the New Apostolic Reformation. And um, it's amazing the amount of theology now that is found within modern day praise and worship. It used to be that it was sort of like the hymns contained theology and then there's the touchy-feely stuff in the praise and worship. But there's even theology now packed into much praise and worship music that we have to be careful with. And so, when we think about these things this morning, these, these duties and these disciplines of a good shepherd, I think it's something that we ought to be applying to anybody we allow to influence our thinking when it comes to our relationship with Christ. So it doesn't just apply to me. It applies to anybody you might listen to during the week. Whether it's on the radio, or whether it's favorite favorite blog, or maybe it's a podcast you listen to. So we're going to walk through these things today. I'm going to use disciplines here as a reference to the principles that a good shepherd should practice in his own life. Those are found in the first four or five verses, verses 6 through 10. Those are the disciplines. Then I'm going to talk about the duties, which refer to those things for which a good shepherd is responsible. And these are found in verses 11 through 16. So we'll have six points primarily today. So let's look at that first discipline. But before we do that, let me do this. We're going to go ahead and read verses 6 through 16. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll come back and digest it. Chapter 4, starting in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying out of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. So all your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to all your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. So you know that right out of the gate, Paul is telling Timothy here what it's going to take for him to be a good, in other words, a faithful servant. And again, it comes down to three disciplines. And three duties. Let's start with that first discipline. The first discipline is that a good shepherd is one who nourishes himself on sound doctrine. A good shepherd is somebody who nourishes himself on sound doctrine. Look back at verse 6 again. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ, Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith, of the faith, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. 
These things refers to everything that Paul has shared with Timothy, not just in this letter, but ultimately all of his letters. We see that repeated throughout this, and so it includes not just what came before this, all the instructions he gave him, but even in the instructions that he's now going to give in chapters 5 and 6. That's what these things, and you can look at that if you just do a quick search, you can see the phrase these things shows up multiple times in this letter. Paul says that by teaching these things to the the church, Timothy would be a good servant. Again, a reference to what it means to be a faithful servant of God. But it wasn't simply teaching these things that made Timothy a good servant or would make him a good servant. Look at the second half of verse 6. He says, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Notice it says there that he would be nourished. That word nourish refers to the process of educating and training oneself. That's what it means. To educate and to train oneself. Notice the New American Standard translation of the Bible there actually enters the word or adds the word constantly. It's in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek, but it's because of the tense of that word, which implies an ongoing thing. So the New American Standard does a great job of translating that as constantly nourished. And that was something that was necessary for Timothy to be a good, faithful servant, was he would have to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and on sound doctrine. Paul kind of reminds Timothy that it's something he's already been doing. You notice he says, which you have been following. It's, we talk about this quite a bit here. The tense that Paul uses there refers to action that started in the past and continues into the future. It's something that was a habit for Timothy. Timothy had a habit of constantly nourishing himself on sound doctrine and on the teachings of the Christian faith. You know, it's interesting. One of the perks of me having to be up here every Sunday morning, and I think I've shared this multiple times, is that it forces me to have to be in the Word of God every week. forces me to. I don't have a choice. I can't get up here and teach unless I've done my due diligence. And because I've chosen to take an approach that is book by book, verse by verse, guess how I study? Book by book, verse by verse. I oftentimes have my Bible. I've got a program called Bible Works, which helps me work through some of the language stuff. But it's got all my cross-referencing there. and It's got all the different English translations. It's got my Greek and my Hebrew, and so I can work through that. But the bulk of my time studying is right here. I don't start by reading six other interpretations or six other books about the subject that we're supposed to preach or teach on. It is diving into the Word, cross-referencing, looking things up, meditating, praying about it. I oftentimes find myself looking at something going, I don't know what to do with this, since I have to bow my head and spend some time praying. Now, it's a choice, but I'm also forced to do that because of the way that I've chosen to teach. And that's one of the perks. One of the greatest blessings in my life is that God established that in me early on, because I might not have done that on my own. It's a lot easier just to simply read what somebody else wrote and regurgitate that for somebody. I think I've shared it with you before. Andy Stanley's comment about expository preaching is the easy way out. No, it isn't. It's hard work. And I don't say that to be prideful or to be arrogant, but it's hard work. But one of the perks of doing that is I am forced to be in the Word of God every week. 
And I say this to my shame, I might not be in the Word as much as I am if I didn't have to be up here and teach you every week. Because just the nature of man. How many of you find it difficult to get into the Word of God on a weekly basis on your own? I'm no different. But because there's some built-in accountability that if I get up here and sound like an idiot, I don't want... No, I am forced to be in the Word of God every week. And I'm thankful to God for that. I was taught to do that by my own mentor, my own pastor. So again, it's a great perk. forces me to be nourished on the sound doctrine. Huh? We can't get any sounder than this. And on the teachings of Christ. So the first discipline of a good shepherd is that he nourishes himself constantly. He educates, trains himself on sound doctrine. I have to, I have to share this. We were... Joking around, Dustin alluded to it this morning. Um, we were bouncing some passages back and forth between Matt, Dustin, and I this morning, some teasing back and forth. And we were sort of poking each other with scripture verses. And one of the neat things about that, I told Matt this when I came in, I was like, you know what's coolest about that is we were sort of teasing each other, but we were using Bible verses to do it almost with no commentary. Just point this verse, point this verse, point this verse, you know. There's something to be said about your thinking being captivated on the Word of God. And so we were doing that this morning as we playfully teased one another. And much of it was right from, sort of started right from this passage this morning, thanks to Dustin. So that first discipline of a good shepherd is that he constantly nourishes himself on sound doctrine, the teachings of Christ. The second discipline of a good shepherd is that he avoids false teaching. It's the opposite of that. Look back at chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables. Now, yeah, it's on here fit only for old women. I'll let you digest that. But he says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables. In the opening of his letter, Paul charged Timothy with, was, with preventing certain men from teaching false doctrine. This is a personal warning to Timothy himself. So the original command was prevent those men from teaching false things. Now he's warning Timothy, Timothy, you yourself have nothing to do with those. And notice he calls them worldly fables. They're they're myths. They're things that are grounded in worldly thinking. This warning is one that Paul issued repeatedly throughout the pastoral epistles. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. He says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach. Notice as strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. He tells Timothy, these men are caught up in these worldly fables, these myths. Jump over to chapter 6, verse 20 in 1 Timothy. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Jump down to verse, I think it's verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin 
of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Look at this. Accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this sealed. The seal, the Lord knows who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That reference there, abstaining from wickedness, is a direct reference to abstaining from worldly fables and false teaching. There's a couple of mentions in Titus as well of the same exact thing. Paul warned Timothy to avoid such things. A good shepherd is somebody who's going to reject anything and everything that contradicts the Word of God. But in order to do that, he first has to be nourished on the Word of God itself. You know, one of the things I've seen in some almost 40 years of of being a Christian and, and a good part of that in ministry is that oftentimes, even pastors, um, good godly men and women, they're drawn to the fanciful. You know what I mean by that? Something new kind of comes on the scene. And they're drawn to it. They're intrigued by it. And that's not always a good thing. You know, when you look at the, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the author writes that there's nothing new under the sun, a lot of false teaching is just repackaged, sold a different way, by a new author, with a new book, a new speaking tour. And it's amazing how oftentimes even pastors and others are enamored by it and drawn away by it. And that's a very dangerous thing. I remember back when I was in seminary, um, you may or may not remember the books, but an author by the name of Neil Anderson had written some books, Bondage Breaker, and um, what was the other one? Bondage Breaker and then Victory Over the Darkness. Okay? And what was interesting about that is they became all the rage. They were everywhere. At the time, bookstores were common, and you'd walk into a bookstore, and it's all in displays right in the front there. And I was at Grace Seminary, and I had a a lot of relationship with some Grace College students. I had a college ministry. I was doing a a Bible study that I was doing with college students. And I began to notice that a lot of them would come in carrying those two books and investing a lot of time. And what was interesting is the phenomenon that we began to see happening on campus, where a lot of the students on campus began to struggle with their faith. And it was rather interesting. And so as I began to dialogue with some of those college students about what was going on, much of it was tied back directly to the two books that were basically all the rage on campus. Because the ultimate essence of the books was that almost everything can be blamed on possession of demons and other things, even for Christians. And so we had all these Christians on campus now who were believing that maybe they were possessed by demons. And... Anderson, in his writing, was, was very captivating. He would describe, in fact, one, one time he describes that while he was preaching on this subject, demons were biting him on the hand and he could see the, the, the teeth prints in his hands, you know? And so it was all very fanciful. And so I began to get a little concerned because of what I was seeing happening with the Christian faith of many of these students. And finally, as we began a dialogue with the school, they ultimately realized they had a problem. And they... I won't say ban the books, but began to basically tell the students, you've got to stop reading this stuff. Stop reading it. Because it was destroying the faith. Now this was a man who claims to have been a believer, but his theology was whack. It was not theological. It was not biblical. Much of what he was describing was more from his head. It was very fanciful. But it was captivating. 
I read through both of his books and it was captivating. So many are drawn away by that kind of stuff. They're drawn to the fanciful. Right now, one of the fastest growing segments within the Christian church is this group referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation. About 80% of our praise and worship music is generated by that group. And it's very similar. I mentioned a book that I've been reading last week that, was giving, that gives example after example of some of this stuff. It's all very fanciful. Pastors and teachers are not immune to that. In fact, oftentimes because we love the debate and the discussion and we think of ourselves as very wise and very smart, I had one individual at one time told me, I'm too intelligent to be deceived. And it was in the context of him being deceived. And so, Paul warns Timothy, avoid this stuff. Don't be drawn to the fanciful, the worldly fables and stuff. One of the main responsibilities of the shepherd is to protect the flock, and he can't do that when he's enamored by such things, when he's drawn away by such things. I know pastors and teachers who spend more time reading that type of stuff than they do their own Bible. And they look at it as an academic exercise. I think that's dangerous. If you're spending more time reading that stuff than you are this, there's a problem. Unfortunately, most false teaching originates at the top. I'd love to blame the flock. Say it starts there, but oftentimes that's not the case. It starts often at the top and trickles down. Paul warned about this explicitly when he was talking to the elders of Ephesus at Acts chapter 20. I'm not going to have you turn there, but he told them to guard themselves. He said, savage wolves would come in among you, among the elders. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It oftentimes happens at the top. And so Paul warns Timothy here, one of the disciplines of a good shepherd is to avoid being enamored, being drawn away, paying attention to such things. Nobody that stands up and does what I'm doing right now is perfect. We learn just like everybody else. And that means that there are times where my theology and my understanding of the Bible has to be corrected by further study. It's a process. It's a growth. Even we read a passage a little bit earlier where Peter talks about that, where the reason God puts pastors and teachers into the body is so that we all might grow and mature in our understanding of Christ. And pastors do that too. And so there has to be some grace there. And that's one of the reasons why Dustin and I, as we stand up, we have repeatedly told you folks, you are our accountability. We have no problem with confrontation. If you think we are mishandling the word, or if you think we're not using something, you approach us and talk to us. And we are open to listen and to be challenged. Because we're not immune. So the second discipline is that a good shepherd avoids false teaching does not get enamored with stuff like that. The third and final discipline that Paul mentions here is found in the second half of verse 7 and verse 9 is that a good shepherd trains himself for the purpose of godliness. He trains himself for the purpose of godliness. Let's look at the second half of verse 7 through 9. 
On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Paul contrasts here bodily discipline, or bodily training, if you will, another way to say that, with spiritual discipline, godliness. He says bodily discipline is limited in value or benefit because it's temporal, it's earthly. There is nothing eternal about bodily discipline. I get up most mornings, usually seven days a week. First thing I love to do is eat. Well, I shouldn't say that. I stay in bed and it takes me a half hour to get out of bed. That's where, or get out of bed. That's where my prayer time is and that. But when it, when it comes to actually getting out of bed, the very first thing I want to do is I want to eat. Then I wait about 30 minutes and I go down and I work out. Part of that is to help with blood sugar control. I'm pre-diabetic, so if I'm not careful, even something as simple as a small breakfast can cause my blood sugar to rise. So I go and I work out. So some mornings I do the treadmill. Some mornings I lift weights. And I do that again to benefit this tent that's decaying. However, I know that that's a temporal thing. It's a lot of work. But it's temporal. It's not going to last. This tent is indeed decaying. I spent, I don't know, two trips yesterday to pick up about 120 bags of mulch, loading them up in the van. You know, I loaded them up in the van, took it home, unloaded it, made another trip, loaded it up, took it home, unloaded it. I'm done. Now, five years ago, ten years ago, all that mulch would be already laid out. It would all be done, you know. But no, I'm done. I'm 58, or almost 58. Body's decaying. It's getting a little more difficult. Last week when I came, or it was last week or the week before I came in, I could barely move for doing something very similar. So I do what I can, bodily-wise, bodily discipline-wise, but again, it's temporal. Contrary to that, Paul says that godliness is profitable for all things. It holds promise for the present life, this one, this earthly life, and also for the life to come. In other words, there are both earthly rewards as well as eternal rewards. Now, godliness here, as Paul says, to, defi- or to discipline himself, meaning Timothy, for godliness, it refers to devotion or religious convictions and practice. We sometimes refer to it as piety. If I were to say, he's a godly young man, I'm saying you can see it in him. It's the way he conducts himself or the way she conducts herself. There's both earthly rewards for that as well as heavenly rewards. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 with me. I'm going to read a chunk of scripture here. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll start in um, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, that's the secular, and godliness, that's the spiritual, through a true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In other words, part of our relationship with Christ, by focusing on godliness, it helps us to deal with ungodliness. 
That's an earthly benefit. It helps us deal with corruption in this life. Now for this very reason also, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, meaning you're growing and you're maturing in these things, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way... The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You'll notice if you go back over that passage that he addresses both this life and the spiritual life. This life and the next life. And how by focusing, this whole passage I just read is about godliness, maturity and growth in Jesus Christ. And by doing that, there's benefit for both this current life, but also eternal life. And so, Paul tells Timothy here to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. That's what a good shepherd does. Now, there's merit in this for every Christian, obviously. It doesn't just apply to me or Dustin or anybody else who teaches. In chapter 6, Paul warned Timothy to be the kind, or warned about the kind of false teachers who try to use a form of godliness to their advantage, but he says it's not real genuine godliness. They feign it. They sort of look like they're godly, but they're really not, and they're doing it for personal gain. He says that those type of men want to get rich. They fall into temptation and the snare of the devil. They give in to their harmful desires, and it plunges them into ruin and destruction, we're told. There are plenty who feign righteousness. They pretend to be righteous. They pretend to be godly. But Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It should be real. You know, the biggest issue with many popular pastors and teachers that have fallen isn't their teaching, isn't their theology. It's a moral failure. They didn't discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. Think about it. We don't often, I mean, we do sometimes. When you look at, and I won't rattle off a bunch of names. There's there's tons of them we could rattle off. But if you start rattling off names of godly or of, of um, Christian men that were in ministry, whether they were pastors or teachers, popular people that we know, and you look at the reason for their falling from grace, if you can call it that, more often than not, it's a moral failure, not a failure of theology or doctrine. Now, some have. Some have gone off. The, we mentioned Rob Bell. He went off the rails. And that was a theological derailment. But so many of the other names we've seen in the last few years have been moral failures. They feigned godliness, feigned righteousness. They hadn't disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness. And a good shepherd does. I've got an article here. Um, I won't go over it all, but I kind of mentioned to you that, that this book that I've been reading called um, Counterfeit Kingdom, which is all about the new apostolic reformation. And it has to do a lot with Bethel 
music and church and Hillsong and and um, some of the others, um, Ken Bickles, uh, Ken Bickle, Mike Bickles, IHOP, International House of Prayer, and some of those where a lot of our music and stuff comes from. And um, well, tons of books and other things written from, from these individuals. I think I sent Dustin a picture of a book the other day. I said, I think this will be my next book. And it was all commanding angels and demons and all kinds of bizarre stuff. But um, right out of the... Um, NAR movement but what was interesting is there was an article in the Christian Post just a week or two ago on Hillsong and this lucrative honorarium scheme that they have and what's fascinating about it it's something we've seen for years in a number of other um, churches and organizations where what they basically do is you have these pastors who claim I don't really get paid a salary but what they do is they get invited to another one of their sister churches somewhere and they do a couple of sermons and they get twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars for doing that in an honorarium. And in places like Australia, you don't pay tax on that. And then what they do is they invite that pastor to come to their church, and he does the same thing. And so a lot of these guys are making over a million dollars a year in tax-free stuff. And so what this article is about is the investigation of, of the leader of Hillsong and um, the tax fraud and all kinds of other stuff that's involved with that. It, it, they, 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 they come across as godly, they come across as righteous, but behind the scenes, all of this stuff is hidden. And I, I, again, it's a fascinating article because everything down to the first class tickets to these super fancy hotel rooms that'll cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a night that these guys are put up in. you know, And it's all kind of behind the scenes. And they'll, again, oh, we don't get paid. We don't get paid. But there's all these perks and everything else. And so Houston is probably ultimately going to spend some time in prison, I think, because of the tax fraud and other things. But um, again, we're supposed to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And so often that's where people in my position and, and Dustin that stand up in front and teach, that's where the feeling comes. And so Paul challenges Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's what we ought to expect. And to be real honest, it gets harder and harder today because so many of the people that we listen to and we allow to feed us and teach us, we don't have a relationship with like you do with your pastor or your elders. It makes it much more difficult. Let's move on to the duties now. Because Paul now moves on to the duties of a good shepherd. The first duty that he mentions here is that a good shepherd is to feed the flock. Look at chapter 4, verse excuse me, verse 11. He says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord said, I will give you shepherds, after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. That has always been God's plan, to give his people shepherds that would feed them on knowledge and understanding of him. And so here, Paul tells Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. We often use the imagery of feeding the flock to refer to sound preaching and teaching, and that's essentially what it is. Here, Paul tells Timothy to do just that. The number one duty of a shepherd, I believe, the number one duty is to teach. That's what it is. 
is to care for the health and well-being of the flock by teaching what's written here. I've shared this story before, the first time I ever preached in front of my own mentor. Um, I was anxious to hear what he thought, and when he pulled me aside in his office afterwards, his, his um, kind rebuke was, I don't really care what you think. When you get up in that pulpit, you've got one job, and it's to tell me, thus saith the Lord. Consider me sufficiently rebuked. That's the number one responsibility of a shepherd is to feed the flock. I I jokingly had mentioned to you before again, um, my sister had been complaining about a new pastor they had gotten at their church. He was a disciple of Andy Stanley. And um, so when she had mentioned that, I kind of said, "Ah, I don't think this is going to go well. She's like, well, but everybody's excited. Well, they began to notice almost immediately that he didn't usually use the word. He would get up, his messages were very short. Um... And they began to feel somewhat starved. And so Joni and and some of the others at the church, and it it had been the fastest growing church in Arizona under the previous pastor, who happened to fall morally, which is why they needed a new pastor. But um, anyway, so she said, you know, he teaches constantly. He might use a verse here or a verse there, but it's very thin. There's not much meat to it. And she said, so a number of us approached him and said, we don't feel like you're feeding us. And his response was, it's not my job to feed you. You could feed yourself. Well, I sent her a picture one time. I went and watched one of his messages, and I noticed he had his iPad out, and it was propped up on his Bible. His Bible was sitting like this, and his iPad was sitting like that. And so I took a screenshot of it, I sent it back to her, and I said, well, wait a minute, you said he never uses his Bible. Of course he does. It props up his iPad. And that was sort of the reality of it. Well, he's no longer there. Well, amen. The church shrunk significantly. There's a lot of damage. Um... They finally asked him to leave, and now they decided to go a different direction, which is to hire a teaching pastor whose only job is to teach, and they're going to hire an executive pastor who will now take care of everything else because they've seen the damage done by the previous pastor. So he's supposed to feed the flock. That's one of the duties of a good shepherd. But you know, it isn't just enough that they teach and preach the word because notice that Paul does something else here. He says in verse 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. He is supposed to teach, not just by opening the word, prescribing and teaching these things, he is also supposed to teach by example. Paul mentions all kinds of things here. He's supposed to do it in speech, his conduct, love, faith, and purity. He's supposed to teach by example. That's a hard thing sometimes, folks. I'll be real frank, I don't often feel like I live up to that. It's hard when you realize that you're supposed to be an example. And so here, this is exactly what he calls on Timothy to do. Not only preach and teach, but to live out what he's preaching and teaching by the example that he sets. Unfortunately, we see oftentimes that that's not always the case. You know? Well, it's good enough for you, but it doesn't apply to me. It's not true. One of the things that I have to routinely ask myself before I ever stand up here as I look through a passage is, What does this passage mean to me and am I faithful in applying this passage? Because if I get up and teach this passage and don't believe it applies to me, or if I get up and it doesn't because of my behavior, I've got a problem. 
not just credibility in your eyes, but ultimately before God. So it has to apply to me first. Because that's the only way. You know, Paul at one point says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That had to be a hard thing for Paul, because if you look at what Paul says in the book of Romans, he struggled with sin too, just like everybody else. But a good shepherd should be able to set an example. Second duty of a good shepherd is found in verse 13. And that's that a good shepherd is to be scripture focused. I think this is critical too. Scripture focused. Look at verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Did you catch that? Paul had planned on coming back to Ephesus, but was delayed. And so he tells Timothy, until I get there, give attention, pay attention, devote yourself to... And he mentions three things. He says the reading of Scripture. That means public reading of the Scripture. I don't think it's coincidence that Paul puts that first. Second thing, he says exhortation. This word generally has two uses in the New Testament. That of encouraging or comforting someone in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So either encouraging or comforting somebody. So he's to exhort. That's more than one-on-one. So you have the public reading of Scripture, which is pretty much what we're doing right now. And then there's the exhortation, which is the one-on-one. And there's teaching, which is, brings it back full circle again. Teaching, while exhortation is often informal, teaching generally refers to formal instruction, and it relates to the Word of God. That's why our number one thing, when we decided to start meeting here, doing what we're doing, we wanted this time at the front of the time, our front of the time here, because we wanted to showcase it, meaning this is critical. Many churches get it reversed, meaning that, hey, you know, the music is the most important thing. Music is critical. We agree with that. But what you see here, public reading of scripture, exhortation, And teaching. Why did Paul put those here? Because it's of critical importance to the church, and a good shepherd will be scripture focused. One of the things that we constantly um, are challenged by is how, when we either get approached or when somebody has a question, is how can we answer that with a biblical answer, a scriptural answer? I would much rather try to give you a biblical answer than tell you what floats around in my head. Scripture focused. And so Paul calls on Timothy to be scripture focused here. Apparently, Timothy was a gifted teacher. Look down at verses 14 and 15. He says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by ultimately the elders. That's another word for that. He says, take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. So he tells Timothy not to neglect that gift that he had been given, this gift of teaching, exhortation, preaching. He tells him, take pains in it, which means to work hard at it. Be absorbed in it. Um, I will be the first to tell you that it's not easy. If it's easy to get up and teach, there's a problem, folks. It probably means that the individual that's doing the teaching is simply teaching you what's in his head. That's easy. 
But if you have to spend time diving into the Word of God every week and digesting it and working through it and asking whether you're interpreting it properly and then figuring out how to take that and present it and be able to to help people figure out how to apply that, that is hard work. And he tells Timothy here, even though Timothy was gifted, he says, take pains, work hard at it. I joined this Facebook group on expository preaching that's been really interesting. Neat to see how these guys are interacting because of the questions they ask one another and they oftentimes will ask, hey, how much time do you spend in the Word every week? How do you decide what to preach next? They even post passages and say, here's what I'm working through on this passage. What do you think I ought to do with this? How might I apply this? Am I misinterpreting this? These guys are working hard and making sure. One guy shared a picture of himself on a Saturday in the pulpit going over his notes and, and what he was teaching. And he said, does anybody else do this or am I alone? And so it started some interaction. And one of the things he said was, I just want to get it right when I stand up here on Sunday morning. Pastor Steve Mitchell, um, pastor of um, the church that's over in Sunbury that we have mentioned here time and again. He passed away a couple of years ago due to COVID. But one of my first meetings with him when we sat and we talked, he said, boy, when I, when I get up in, in the pulpit on a Sunday morning and I open that word of God, I'm almost petrified because of the responsibility that God has given to me to open that word. He goes, I am not worthy to do that. And I remember talking to him and he, he felt he wasn't worthy to do it because he had no, no formal education in seminary. And I looked at him and I said, Steve, I've got the degree, but that makes me no more qualified than you because you handle the word better than most guys that I've ever met. And that was the truth because that is what he studied. He was scripture focused. You can see this focus in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 4, 1 through 12. He says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Notice what Paul does there. Basically, he's going to charge Timothy with something. He's going to give him a command, and he says, I do this in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately going to judge the living and the dead. And I do this in his appearing... And in this kingdom, so that gives weight to what I'm now going to challenge you to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy, be scripture focused. That makes you a good shepherd. That's one of your duties. Unfortunately, many popular modern day preachers and teachers have shifted away from that. They're no longer scripture-focused. They're no longer expository-based in their model of preaching and teaching. I'm not talking about... You can do topical sermons and have them be expository. So it's not, a, it's not between expository and topical. But all preaching and teaching should be expository. It should be telling you what God's Word is saying. Unfortunately, that's not the case in many modern churches today. In fact, there have been studies done on this. I recently read an article titled Understanding the Contemporary Preaching Model which described the popular trend in preaching and teaching today in most churches. One pastor of a large church in Washington was quoted in the article saying that sermons should begin, this is how we begin, sermons should always begin by going straight to the self-help section of the local bookstore because that's where he got his ideas from. Modern preaching has become very narcissistic which is very me-focused I'm going to mention another name here, Rick Warren. 
one of the most well-known megachurch pastors, he just recently retired, claimed that sermons could come from the response to primarily three questions. And I'm not trying to disparage him. I don't doubt he loves the Lord. But I do question the basis for how he determined what he was going to teach on a Sunday morning. And he came from responses to three questions. The first one was, what are people's needs? What do they need me to teach them this morning? That's not a bad thing. Okay? What are people's hurts? Where are they hurting? Now that limits what you're going to teach them, doesn't it? But then thirdly, what are their interests? What do they want to hear me teach on? Now, I'm not saying those three things are necessarily bad. But when those are what you use to determine what you teach every Sunday, instead of, I've got 66 books here that God has spoken, and my job is to preach the entire counsel of God's word, they may not have an interest in what I'm going to teach this morning. They may not be hurting this morning when they come in. This modern style of preaching prides itself on fancy titles and contemporary ideas. Bill Heibel, another one, claimed that he often spent hours just trying to pick the perfect title for a sermon series. That's where he began, was I got this great title for a sermon series. Now I will craft sermons to support that title. Now again, I'm not trying to disparage these individuals as much as to say that's not a proper approach to preaching and teaching and we see it today. We don't start with what I think you people need to hear this morning or what I think you people might be hurting with or what I think your interests might be or the latest greatest TV series or the new Marvel superheroes. There's a church I was reading about. I think I sent Matt and Dustin a snapshot the other day. Every year they do a sermon series based on all the new Marvel movies that have come out. Now, is that really where we need to begin or where we should start? I know a lot of gifted preachers and teachers who are scripture-focused. And I can say with absolute certainty that none of them would say that preaching and teaching is easy. They take pains at it. They diligently study the Word of God every week. They spend hours and hours absorbed in the Word of God. They see it as their duty to be a good shepherd. They don't find themselves giddy over this great sermon title. You notice I don't even title most of my sermons. Because I don't know that it really matters. We don't have any flashy graphics to draw you in. I figure that no matter what passage I open up, if I open it up and I tell you what it says, you're going to walk away with something from God's word. Regardless of where you were when you came in. Now, other things, if you're hurting... Come up and talk, and we'll open the scriptures to a passage that helps you with your hurt. If there's something you're interested in, study it. Or say, hey, can we study this? And maybe we'll go there next. But we ought to really start here. Be scripture focused. The last thing, we'll finish up pretty much with this and a takeaway. The third duty of the good shepherd is to remain conscientious. Look at verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourselves and those who hear you. What a responsibility. Timothy, do these things, be a good shepherd, and guess what? You will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Anybody want that burden? 
I refer to this section as being conscientious, a good shepherd needing to remain conscientious because being conscientious means that one is aware of his own behavior and is governed by a good conscience. You know, repeatedly Paul himself mentioned having a good conscience in the things that he did. He was always conscientious of his responsibility before Christ, what he was doing, the fact that he was an example, that he was using the word. Keeping a clear conscience was critical for Paul in his own ministry. In fact, he even says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's from 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul was always conscientious. And he calls on Timothy to be that. Wouldn't that be something if we could expect our politicians and government leaders to be that way? I mean, one of my favorite phrases from the last couple of years are, good for thee, but not for me, as we've seen these political leaders that mandate all these things, but then we find them doing the opposite. Well, the church has no place for that with their leaders either. If it's good for thee, it's good for me. And a good shepherd has the duty to be conscientious, to always be looking at himself and asking, do I live by the things I preach and teach? Am I honoring and respecting the Lord? So Paul challenges Timothy to be conscientious as his last duty. So what do we do with this? Let's wrap it up with this. I think I've got a very simple takeaway for us. For much of church history, the teaching and the preaching was done in churches by people you knew. You could see them every week. You lived with them. You hung out with them, right? And the summary, you know, that's what we, we have here, Right? But so much of our teaching and what influences us today comes from external sources. Books that we read. Maybe if you still watch TV, you watch them your, your favorite Christian channels or whatever. Um, books that you read. Blog posts you might um, read. Um, podcasts you might listen to. Radio when you're in the car. We have all these sources of teaching that come from the outside. Almost anybody can become a teacher today without the accountability that's necessary. They don't have to live by these rules. It doesn't matter. In fact, what's really interesting about this, this NAR stuff that I've been reading too is how many of those leaders within that movement, their names that you would know, have all these ways to circumvent the rules that they just don't apply to them. They don't have to live up to these things. And they know it. And so what happens is when they fail over here, they show up over here. In fact, there's a number of guys that I've watched over the years who failed in one ministry here because they've destroyed it and all of a sudden pop up over here. Another one just recently, Carl Lentz, who was with Hillsong, burnt out from some sexual stuff. And all of a sudden now another big church down in Texas or down south has hired him to be their consultant. I'm like, this guy destroyed a church. He was immoral sexually. He cheated on his wife. And you now hired him as your consultant. What, what is wrong? What is, the rules don't apply. And so my, my takeaway for us is this. All the things we talked about today apply to me. I've mentioned this last week. You're my accountability. These are the things you should look for for anybody that teaches you. So whether it's me and Dustin or David when he gets up and teaches or your favorite teacher you listen to on the radio or the books that you read or the blog posts that you might read, or the podcasts you might listen to. These are the things we ought to expect of those we allow to feed us, to teach us, and to influence us. It's God's protection from what we talked about last week. False teaching and apostasy. Amen?